who has access to what? If you are looking for identity and access management talk, you have come to the right place. This is the Identity at the Center podcast. Hosts Jeff Stedman and Jim McDonald are strategic advisors with Adentropy's advisory services practice and are here to talk about a wide range of identity and access management topics. Comments, questions, and accolades can all be sent to identityatthecenter.com. And now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Identity at the Center. I am Jeff, and we've also got Jim on the line. Say hi, Jim. Hey, Jeff. Hi, everyone. And we've got a special guest this week, Jim, don't we? Yes, we have Ash Matawala. So Ash is the co-CEO of Identropy. I've been with Identropy for um, almost eight years and I've known Ash for you know a little bit longer than that. I mean, he is truly a legend within our industry. I'm going to see if I can make him blush here a little bit, uh, but he really is. He's somebody who um, has been in the industry for probably 15 plus years, I guess, obviously prior to 2006, and he's worked with hundreds of companies to um, you know, do what we're doing now, Jeff, which is developing uh, IAM strategies for our clients. So Ash kind of invented the, uh, the process that we do today. Um, obviously, he's, he's borrowed the, the learnings from people over the years, but um, we wanted to have Ash on today to kind of... Um, you know, give his perspective and talk through kind of the, the history of the company, why he started Identropy, um, some of the different, um, you know, phases of, of growth that we've gone through and, and what he sees as the future, not only for Identropy, but for the IEM industry as a whole. So welcome to the podcast, Ash. Thank you. Thank you very much to, to both of you and uh, congrats on this podcast. Been listening and uh, great work. It truly is a gem in the uh, podcast space, I like to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the few IAM podcasts, and I'm not sure if that's uh, luck or just a lack of interest, but... I'm just going to go ahead and say we're the best IAM podcast because I don't think there are any other ones, so we just get it by default. (laughs) We're definitely in the top 10. Definitely in the top 10, that's for sure. There you go. So So I've been in the space for a while, right? Um, and I think there's one thing that Jim forgot to mention. I think you've actually got some patents. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's um, that has to deal with uh, the software startup that we did in the middle of the Identropy history. Um, we, we had a software startup. So, yeah, there were some patents there. To be honest, there was a, a team of people who really put the bulk of the effort in there, and I just got to, to rubber stamp my name in there. But, uh, yeah, we do. We, it's, it's a nice thing to put on, on your profile. Yeah, for sure. Jim, Ash, yeah, I was just going to say, Ash, if you could kind of take us back to, you know, 2005, 2006, when you and, and Victor Barris um, got together to start this company, and what was what was it that projected you into this space, and why did you want to start a company? Why did, how did you figure that you could do something different and uh, more value-add than maybe what was being done elsewhere? Oh, uh, yeah, that... Uh 
I, I wish it was a more eventful story than it was. Uh, Victor and I used to work for another consulting company that um, we weren't terribly fond of, and we said we could probably do a better job. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much how Identrophy started back in 2006. Um, you know, we did start as a consulting company. Um, we were part of a larger um, security consulting firm that did lots of different areas. And we really felt that there was a need in the market for uh, a focused company on identity and access management. Uh, we believed it uh, you know, had amazing growth potential. And you know, myself becoming a, sort of an identity geek or so, I'm terribly fascinated with the problem and still am fascinated by the problem as it continues to evolve. But uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of how we we started it off, um, and you know we, we we learned along the way, you know, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. I mean, both of us did have previous startup ex- startup experience, so it's not like we came in flat. But um, you know, doing it in this space was definitely a new a new thing, and uh, it was such a great time because like everybody, I mean, it's, it's we're still a relatively small group, but. Every back then, really, everybody knew everybody. If you went to a conference, you pretty much knew everybody in the world that cared about identity at that time, and um, and so you got got to rub elbows with some interesting people, and uh, and uh, you know those those connections are really what helped us do all the great things that we've been able to do over the years. Who did you find yourself competing with in the beginning? Was it mostly um, big four consulting firms or other companies that were kind of like you guys? You know, there's there's a little of both. I'm trying. So back then, I remember there were a couple of companies. So there there was um, a company called Neogen. There's an Entology. Entology. There we go. Entology. That's right. Okay. So Entology focused on, I believe it was Sun or Oracle, one of those two, right? And so I think PwC picked those guys up. They were Oracle. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rex, I think, was the guy, right, who was head over there. I'm not sure if he's still a PwC or not. So Larry uh, was the owner, and, and Rex was the, um, I CTO. guess, the managing partner, or CTO, right? Yep, yep, yep. And uh, I remember looking at that company. There's another company called Neogen, based out of California, that was partnered up with Sun. And those were the ones who were like, hey, I want to be those guys when we grow up. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they had interesting uh, little tools that they had to, you know, uh, speed up deployment work. And and so um, that's kind of what we started off doing. And, and um, we really started off on Microsoft and Corian. And, you know, very quickly when we wanted to go and sell these solutions to customers, uh, this happened almost immediately. We identified that um, customers would say, this is great technology, but we don't have our act together yet. We don't have our project drivers laid out and our vision and and roadmap and so you know we're going to be working on that so get back to us and when we heard that one too many times we said we could probably help solve that problem and uh that was really the birth of the advisory program so you did advisory services by yourself for a while right i mean or were you was you know i guess i don't know the full history i know that i saw some of the early documents that you produced and kind of we've I think we're, I feel like we're still using the same framework today, but it's evolved over time. But talk us through some of those early advisors. Were you by yourself or were you in a team? Um, so I would sometimes work with uh, a team, um, a team meaning two people, right? Uh, and Or sometimes by myself for the first like four or five of them. Uh, and so we were... We're trying to figure it out, you know, we go talk to customers, what makes sense. We'd already done a lot of projects, so we had a lot of experience, but we just didn't have a way to package it, to give it to a customer in a program fashion. 
and I think that was really the the you know impetus for us to start thinking about that. And very early on, I did a few, um, and then we brought on Frank Villavicencio. Of course, Frank, that's how we uh, me and you know each other, Jim, right? I know Frank. I mean, Frank is another legend in the space. So yeah, if Frank would help. So I, I I think we came up with like an initial framework and then very quickly hand. I'm, so I'm good at starting stuff, not so good at, uh, you know, putting the polish. And so uh, I had a few great ideas, put them together, started delivering them, getting some experience uh, and then got Frank involved, and he's he really took it to a next level. And I think throughout the experience of Identropy's advisory arm, we've always had really great, you know, smart people who brought their own take and perspectives and added things to the program as you you guys are doing right now. And uh, and I think that's really what's made it great. It really hasn't just uh, I, I would argue it has not rested on just the initial spark. It's always evolved and come up with new approaches and, and based on the industry changes. I think that's what make, makes it so relevant and why it's been such a successful part of our business. I kind of feel like Frank has probably left his mark on identity more than any other single person. Um, you know, that's not here any longer. Wasn't one of the the founders. I mean, he really. You know, I always remember him talking about we want to revolutionize IAM, and uh, you know, some of his some of his sayings were just um, you know really memorable, like uh, um, "cows move." He would say something like that, and you'd be like, "What?" And then it would just click for you at some point. Where like, okay, I get what he means. Uh, but you know, the other big thing. So when I joined the company. The two things there, and these were two of the reasons why I joined the company. One was we want to revolutionize IEM, and it really had meaning. It was like, you know, at the time, most more than 50% of IEM initiatives were failing, and it was like, we want to change that. We want to have a big impact on the industry to, to change how that's happening, and, and we played our part because that is no longer the case. Um, the other was just building a company with a strong culture. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the culture, but to me, that was always, you know, kind of a centerpiece of, of identity. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and Frank was definitely a big part of that as well. You know, I think when we're small, it was easy to maintain culture as you start growing and and adding people. I think the the magic is how do you keep that that going and how do you maintain that that culture amongst people? Frank was huge in that. Um I remember um, just another Frank story. This is going to become a Frank Pat podcast. We just send this to him. I'm sure you appreciate it. Uh, but I remember we uh, one of the one of the po- one of the first advisors I did. You know, like I went overboard and like wrote a hundred page document, right? And just like poured my heart out in terms of what this vision is for this company and all that type of thing. And 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 then Frank came on and he read it. And he's like, "This is awesome, Ash, but nobody's going to read this." <laughs> Yeah, I feel the same way when I see a long report. You know, I've been on the customer side. It's just like, come on, man. <laughs> no one's yeah. going to read 100 pages or 200 pages or 300 pages of anything. Just get to the point. Yeah, I think I think you guys just saw that. We went to a customer recently and they sent the, the previous attempt at this and they gave us 250-page document that was, uh, all right. Yeah, I mean, I'm in identity and I love this stuff and I'm not reading this. <laughs> yeah. I was looking for the point. They're like, okay, what's the point? Like, look at each, each page. Yeah, that's right. So, so he he's actually Frank was the one who actually said away with the documents. We're going PowerPoint, 
And it's much better format for what we want to accomplish. Keep it simple. Try to keep it under so many slides. Really get to the point. Create two versions: one for the executives, one for the, um, you know, one for the general population of uh, attendees and stakeholders. And so, um, you know, he, I think he really added this, um, you know, additional level of uh, pragmatism, I'd say, to the program that helped. Um, uh, the same, I'd say, for culture. I think that was more of a joint thing, you know. And part of doing, I mean, uh, what, what really differentiates one company from the next is what your day-to-day experience is like. And I think the most valuable part that impacts that is culture. So we've always spent a lot of time thinking about culture and maintaining it and spending time and effort and, and really trying to live by that. Um, you know, and so we, we believe in things like transparency and, and uh, autonomy so that we're not micromanaging. There's a lot of things like that. It's, it's, I think those are really valuable things because it keeps us on, on a certain path and keeps us true to our mission and you know, allows people to hold each other accountable because the, these, these, uh, these values are beyond any of us in, in, in individual from an individual perspective. But you know, as a team, it, it allows us to keep ourselves at least on the right track. Yeah, it's, uh, what I thought was cool was when I joined the company, I was like the 30th employee. I was employee number 30, and only 33 or 34 people had ever been employed by the company. And, you know, the people that had left, it was, you know, they had, they had left on their terms or whatever to, to go pursue something, but it wasn't like there was a lot of turnover. And I attribute a lot of that to the, the culture, right? It was a place that people wanted to be. Um, so I thought that was really cool, but, um, you alluded a little bit earlier it was around that time that identropy was getting into what I think was the, a real, um, attempt to revolutionize IAM and we're developing an identity as a service platform. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I think at the time it was, well, I don't think I know at the time it was called squid life cycles. So maybe talk to us a little bit about squid life cycle, what the, you know, what the dream was for that. And then, you know, the, the whole life cycle of squid life cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So that basically happened in like 2010 or so where um, we raised some venture capital and um, started building software, you know, and at that point we effectively spun out. I want to say, I want to say effectively, cause it's not totally true. It was still legally one, one entity, but we did our best to, to run two organizations as one. And, um, for any listeners, never do that. That's a lesson learned as an entrepreneur. <laughs> you don't want to run a consulting and a software business under one umbrella. Um, seems kind of obvious looking back, but at the time, or there, there were some positives for keeping them under one umbrella that we thought was was worth it. Um, but anyway, I ran the software side. Uh, Victor uh, continued to run the services side, uh, and we did that for a number of years and um, until about fourteen. Uh, 2014, we were uh, going to raise our B round of funding, and there were a couple of interested parties who wanted to uh, um, wanted to acquire uh, Squid, and ultimately it was acquired by Computer Associates uh, around that time. Um, and the consulting part of the con- company continues to to live on, you know. And so that's uh, that's the story. But it was it was so the vision behind it at the time was, you know, people had these really bulky old Oracle type of implementations and would take ridiculous amount of time and very low success. And the idea was to create a lighter weight version of that that can do that's cloud-based, 
um, that really took advantage of uh, you know the trend at that time. And so we built out a platform around that. In fact, a number of number of the people who we brought on were industry guys who had helped build those software companies to begin with. So we had like Nishant Koshik who joined us. We had uh, Ranjit Vidwans who joined us. Um, you know, and all all these other uh, Tom Neckel uh, joined us as well. And and then we're we had legends. A, uh, we're legends yeah. in the space. <laughs> yeah, good, 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 good folks. You know, and it was a, it was a, it was a fun time. I think we all really enjoyed it. And, uh, and as any startup has it had its uh, roller coaster moment moments, but it, it was it was a lot of fun looking back and and uh, happy to hear you know where where things ended. Um, and a number of the folks ended up at CA and stayed there for about three years. And um, I'd say most of them have moved on by now. That gave the you know that, so that was a, a major part of the life cycle of Identropy was building this product and having consulting services essentially um, you know support the company uh, you know basically having an income stream to continue with building the product. Of course, there were investors and, and all that, uh, but you know we made a shift at a certain point after the sale of to uh, CA, well, the shift was essentially 100% IM consulting. And so that was our, our moniker for quite a while. And I think that was to highlight the fact that we're not a product company anymore. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that, that just comes down to marketing, right? And you have to make sure that customers understand um, what you're doing and, and who you are. Um, a lot of times uh, you can get caught up. I think this is one of the biggest problems that startups face and why, why I would recommend having a very singular focus on any startup that, that a person runs is you have to know exactly who you are and what your value prop is to a customer. And if you have more than one, then chances are there's a problem with your business model. Um, and so uh, part of that, uh, you know, changing that moniker at the time was really to focus attention to the customer to say, you know, what we're doing is a very broad-based uh, marketing approach. But I think we've evolved out of that now where we're starting to really come into our own again as a consulting company and thinking about you know, uh, emerging trends, what are the newest things, and really trying to push the envelope rather than um, you know, simply being a, uh, you know, an, a traditional identity partner who goes and implements a specific technology. Is there a particular technology that you think is right on the cusp of becoming mainstream? Kind of like how we saw IGA over the last maybe decade or so kind of ride that wave and then we've seen behavior analytics start to come up over the last few years. What's next? Hmm. I don't know if I could pick a next. That's a tough one. Do you, have, do you have, do you have a next? Do you have, do you have like a, well, I'm a big fan of the analytics. I think that there is a lot of lost value when companies don't take advantage of the IAM data that they're collecting. So that was something that I always like to pull together was reports and metrics and indicators, you know, from an IAM perspective to be able to measure, right. How are things working? A lot of people kind of think of like the basic stuff, right? How long does it take to to create an account? How many password sets are we doing? You know, those sorts of things. But I was looking for things to, you know, provide more value or to find anomalies, you know, that might be interesting. Uh, a lot of it's been taken over by the AI side of things, though. Companies like Bexabeam and others. Well, you know, I mean, what I'm, I think this is one of the areas where identity shines, right? Where we have brains who can think about where these next things are going and. I mean, I'm very excited about analytics in specific, but you not on its own, not as standalone. Um, I, I'm more interested about how it interacts with identity. I mean, I, for, from obviously from an identity practitioner's perspective, um, 
the future is identity. Everything is identity. There's nothing more important than identity. <laughs> the central paradigm of everything, uh, every problem that exists out there. But but there's a truth to it because you know the quote unquote disappearing perimeter and you know all those uh, at this point overused uh, phrases. Yeah. But here's here's a practical example of where analytics plays in. I mean, you you have uh, it play into adaptive authentication where you actually can do things a lot more real time, right? And you have, instead of a rules-based type of engine, you know, have analytics starting to feed uh, that so that it could make, uh, you know, decisions on the fly regarding what level of authentication is required for a specific transaction. And those kind of things are really cool, right? Where you start seeing traditional identity technologies starting to interact in, in nuanced ways with, um, you know, the, the you know, other cyber technologies that are out there and the the net result is that now you could do things a lot more efficiently intelligently than you've ever been able to do that as before i think that authentication that whole world i think is changing because of those types of mashups yeah there's so many different ways now and just the way that the technology has evolved where you know you're you're taking you know milliseconds to make these decisions through logic that's been embedded with whatever application you're using adaptive authentication or continuous authentication right things where they're detecting the cadence of your typing i mean all these kinds of of they sound kind of fringe but when you add them all together can create a very powerful and you know relatively secure nothing's perfect but relatively secure you know authentication change mm-hmm. i think that's something that's interesting i think the other area that that really interests me too is the interface elements of IAM. So when I think of like your traditional IAM, right? It's it's a web page. You go to it, put in some peel, you know, pieces of data, and then you click submit, and then something happens. You know, what's what's after that? Are we going to have? I, I probably said before, right? Things like Siri, Cortana, Alexa. <laughs> you know, is there be, is there going to be a chatbot interface where you're able to do things on those lines? You know, what is what is uh, the next generation of IAM look like from a how do you interact with it? Is it going to be like a computer that you talk to or something else? Yeah, I mean, I think those are a little bit out because the, um, you know, the, it's ultimately going to come down to, you know, natural language generation and processing type of technologies maturing. And those are just starting to come out right now. I think recently Google released uh, um, some new uh, APIs that allow you to do uh, detection in understanding what different, uh, let's uh, say, sets of data mean or or natural language inputs if they both mean the same thing, mm-hmm. right? And I think that as those things start to mature, I think you can definitely start applying it to identity. I think I think that's a bit out. But the other part about where... Um, uh, from the authentication, adaptive authentication, that's here now. I mean, that's, I, I mean, we were talking about passwordless authentication a couple of years ago, and like, oh, this is the panacea. I mean, we're starting to see, uh, Nishant, for example, Nishant Koshik, who, who was uh, Squid CTO, worked with us here. He went over, now he's CTO at uh, Uniken, is it? Um, I forget the name of the, the company, Uniken, there's a, the competitor's call sign, right, that whole space. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, there's, I remember reading a term, it's called invisible MFA, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, those, those are the kind of things that are actually in play today. It's not even the future, right? So that uh, I think that's exciting because uh, the technologies here, we're starting to see the use cases. Uh, I wouldn't say it's totally mainstream yet, but um, I think that that's definitely one of the forerunners right now for, for being the next wave. Yeah, there's definitely some some interesting things happening there. And, you know, I think when we talk about the password, I think a lot of people are kind of banking on biometrics as being 
something that would replace the password or at least, you know, reduce the dependence on it. Um, fingerprints, you know, retina scans, you know, those sorts of things, palm prints. Uh, but recently there was a breach by a, um, for a company, a Suprema, and they do physical access security through an application and fingerprints and facial recognition data, recognition data, along with a whole bunch of other stuff was taken. And that's scary in that you can't change your fingerprint. At least right. <laughs> right. Or you can't change your face, at least, you know, probably in a way that would make sense for authentication. Mm-hmm. You know, what it, that the whole privacy concern around that is interesting too. And, you know, what happens in those cases where, you know, your, your index finger is no longer able to be used as authenticator. Do you yep. another finger or do you, how do you, do you blacklist that one? You know, that, that digit and you have to use another finger or, a pan, you know, a different method. Um, right. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting things that I think are going to come out of that, that breach as to what comes next. You know, I, I think like GDPR and everything that's come out of that with privacy requirements that have uh, emanated from that or driven that um, is, I hate to say, but it is from the top down causing some type of innovation by force through compliance in the industry, right? And, and you know, a lot of chatter right now happening at the analyst level about, you know, blockchain-enabled identity. And, and I think Gartner or Forrest, one of them has this whole thing about decentralized identity uh, as a topic. Um, specifically for that, this issue right here, whether you have multiple components, whether it be fingerprints or, uh, you know, all the different po- potential inputs to uh, authenticate a person, um, but how to how to be able to do that in a way that is out of band, right? So that uh, um, you know, you're, it's not it's not sitting at the the actual service provider themselves. Very similar to the SAML concept, but taking that to multiple multiple uh, methods of authentication. Um, I think that that, that's going to impact countries, right? I mean, now you're going to have entire countries moving in that direction, and that, that's powerful stuff. We had Luis Almeida on the on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and um, he made the comment that Sarbanes-Oxley was the best thing to happen to IAM, you know, from an IAM vendor perspective or people who make their living in IAM. I think GDPR has uh, potential to be, you know, second place to that. I mean, it's... It's on everyone's mind. Everyone knows they have to do something because of GDPR, and everyone's trying to figure out what it is. And um, yeah, could be a driver in the next wave of of uh, spend. You know what I was going to say, Jeff, is we were talking about that topic. But before I go to there, I want to talk about Secure real quick. And I did a little bit of reading on that hack, and the thing that jumped out at me more than anything, and I, I encourage our listeners to go out there and read an article or two was the response from that company after, you know, that this hack was issued. And it was like, well, we'll come back with our retort when we're ready. And it was not very... Um, comforting. Yeah, not comforting. Yeah, that's a great word. Not comforting and not very professional, quite honestly. It's like, you know what, you just coughed up a ton of data and that's your response. But we worked with a client recently who um, was a customer of one login. And the sense that I got from them was that you know, one login worked very closely with them to, and we're not a one login partner, so we don't have any stake in this, but, but they worked very closely with them to make sure that they understand what was at risk and what actions they need to take to make sure that um, they were as secure as possible after uh, the breach that they suffered a couple of years back. Um, 
it's real important that companies after these breaches take place do the right things. And I would say even for, you know, if you're an IAM program manager in a corporate environment, thinking ahead that if you ever were breached, what are the actions that you would take? What do you have a, a plan in place to deal with such things? Who gets involved and making sure that your communications go out in, a, in an orderly fashion. So um, that was my takeaway from that whole breach. But I did want to go all the way back to something you brought up, um, Jeff, about you know, what do what do you, you think are kind of the game-changing next big waves within IAM? And what I think the next big wave is, and I'm going to cheat a little bit because I think it's already here, is the move of customer or external-facing systems to leverage IEM products. So 10 years ago, very few customer-facing systems were on IEM products. They were rolling their own or maybe they had some IEM infrastructure in the background, but for the most part, they weren't leveraging cloud services and they weren't um, you know, using a, a automated workflow system. They were kind of building their own applications for user management, user registration, password management, and even authentication. I see a much bigger shift away, especially in the authentication, the password management space, because the services that are now being tailored, so the, the SAP Customer Cloud, aka Gigia, and even um, you know uh, cloud traditionally enterprise systems like an Okta or a Ping, now Microsoft has an offering for managing credentials, managing um, authentication and password management, uh, multi-factor authentication. Those things no longer make sense to build for the external environment and products and even cloud products are being used. But I think what the next big wave is, is really the ability to do um, more advanced workflows for you know, as products, as cloud offerings. So, you know, we were working with Fordrock. They were kind of like an uh, incumbent to Oracle and CA and IBM because they were a newer platform built uh, more toward um, updated uh, developer um, methodologies for developing applications. So they really we're able to kind of bridge from the old to the new. And I think that's, there's really a, a, a huge audience and a huge opportunity out there that if somebody can, and it can't just be basic registration work, but it's gotta be flexible. It's gotta be some things where you can throw some hooks in and you know um, change the way you do a registration, check a database, things like that. And there's some of that that I see coming along, but that's really the opportunity is the whole user lifecycle management side for external, whether it's B2B, which is very difficult to solve, or B2C, but more advanced than just, just hey, I'm just going to register or I'm going to do uh, create an account through you know social registration. It's the, the, the more difficult stuff. But I think that that's a huge opportunity and a lot of money sitting out there that could be spent on Cloud services. Yeah, I think those are those are great points, and I think you're starting to see vendors starting to move towards that, right? I mean, who who in ten years, maybe we end it like this. Who in ten years are going to be the winners in the identity space? Vendors, you guys want to you want to stake your career on on a guess? Nope. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it changes. Too much. I think I think you'll see, you know, some of the same players that are still out there. But ten years is a long time in a technology space. That's Look that's true. A company like uh, you know, Sailpoint's been around for a while. They've done really well for themselves. But before them, it was what Oracle, IBM, CA, and those guys didn't didn't recognize the importance of the cloud and moving away from these very heavy architectures. Um, you know, what's next will be interesting. And there's some good products that have come out that, you know, I'm sure will give SailPoint a run for their money. And who knows you know, what happens in the next five years, even. I'm going to mention trends instead of actual vendors. So one trend, two trends. One trend is 10 years ago. So the trend is the willingness of people to adapt their technology to fit what's available. And what I mean by that is, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when you're looking at Oracle and CA and IBM and why they were prior to them, even like Oblix and Netegrity, which became Oracle and CA, their strength was they were able to manage the heterogeneous environment. And they had a plug-in for Lotus Domino and for Java application servers and IS application servers, and they could throw headers at the apps. And, you know, they had a plug-in for everything, and there are multiple ways you go about integrating. And now you look at applications, and there's like two or three ways to integrate. It's SAML, it's OpenID Connect, maybe something else. Maybe it's an API call for an authentication that isn't necessarily standards-based. Okay, but basically, you go in... And those kind of companies, those kind of solutions are winning almost all the deals. Nobody's using reverse proxy anymore. Nobody's using web agents. I say nobody. That's not true. Some people are. But more and more folks are moving away from that. So the trend is on the authentication side, we're willing to give up being special or you need to provide a product that plugs in to our application the way it works. We're willing to change the application to make it work. That's trend number one. Trend number two is... I see most companies that are moving into the cloud, it's what we used to call cloud washing. In other words, we're saying, we're in the cloud, we've got a cloud service, and really what they're doing was hosting an individual instance of their application in the cloud. And other companies are coming and saying, we are true software as a service. And we kind of know the advantage of each, right? Each one has its advantages and disadvantages. From a customer perspective, what I'm finding most of my conversations with the customers is I don't really care about the difference, whether it's hosted in the in the cloud model or a software as a service model. Uh, as long as they're not having to maintain the infrastructure and maintain the, the core system themselves, they're good with that. that, that you know, they want to get a subscription model where they're paying a, a monthly bill or an annual bill and they don't have to run the infrastructure. Now, obviously, software as a service goes to the, the the furthest degree of that that you can get. However, I I think that most companies out there are good with a hosted instance of the software, as long as it's the vendor themselves that are doing the hosting. I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think one of the trends that are that's interesting to me is, you know, as as the infrastructure, the infrastructure as a service players start playing a more dominant role in an IT shop's uh, operations, I think that becomes the, the, the source or the, the center of the world for them. 
And that, if those places are starting to offer some serious identity services, they have the largest opportunity to just dominate. Um, and that is likely Microsoft and uh, and Amazon in my and maybe you could put Salesforce as a distant third as a as a pass. Um, but I think uh, I think th- those kind of companies have the largest opportunity to just disrupt in, in, in a very substantial way. And you're always seeing some really interesting technologies come out of both of them, right? Microsoft has made identity a lot more centric, uh, central to their, um, to their conversation, um, more than they've ever had in the past. Um, AWS is definitely moving in that direction too with Cognito and Lambda and all the capabilities that they're bringing out. So I think those, those have, uh, have the largest opportunity to disrupt. And I have a feeling that they, w- that they will, if they have the right team on play, uh, you know, to, uh, in place to, you know, acquire whatever technologies they need, um, to, to build that out. I think those are the ones that can really, really own the whole market. It's true. Yeah. I mean, and Microsoft's probably in the, the pole position in terms of being a platform. I think there are always going to be some organizations, some people who, don't want to go the Microsoft route. And I will say, I mean, almost every component from a security perspective that Microsoft offers, there's somebody who has more capabilities, but you have to piece all those capabilities together to build your infrastructure, whereas they at least are checkbox compliant with um, a component for everything. Um, And so it kind of remains to be seen if they're going to open their ecosystem so that it, you know, I think the um, the knock on Microsoft traditionally has been they build their solutions to manage Microsoft products, and so things that you have outside of Microsoft, that's where you start to fall down. Well, a lot of things have moved towards standard space, especially in the authentication space. So, if it's SAML compliant now, if you have an Azure single sign-on tenant. Um, you can integrate the application. However, when you look at something like Microsoft Privilege Access Management, it's not really threatening what, say, a cyborg can do in terms of its ability to support many different things. So that kind of works against my first point, which is that people are willing to change their apps to fit what you've got. Um, But I think what you really need to get to first is some kind of set of standards that are not you know, proprietary. They're not set by um, one company or another. Well said. Always interesting dialogue on the Identity at the Center podcast. It's always changing. <laughs> you just you just never know where things are going to happen next. And I think that's probably a good spot where we can leave it for now. Um, Ash, totally, you know, thank you for joining us and sharing your pearls of wisdom and uh, appreciate the time you've uh, spent with us today. Uh, thank you for the invite, and it's been uh, been a pleasure working with you guys. Great, thanks, Ash. Always appreciate it. All right, we'll talk to uh, everyone else uh, down the road. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. To access all episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com. dot